welcome again, everybody, and uh, everyone watching online, thanks for joining us there, and at the Montrose Building, thanks for joining us as well, and uh, thanks for gathering together this weekend. We started a series a couple weeks ago called Sacrilege, and what we started doing was looking at times when Jesus pressed into religious systems, and he kind of broke the religious rules of the day. And we started asking the question, like, why would he do that? If Jesus is telling us about himself, or he's kind of revealing what it means that he's the Messiah, like, why, why would he press into these religious things, change them, kind of sometimes, sometimes speak directly against them, but lean into them? And what was he saying? Why was he saying that? And what can we, what can we pick up from it? So we've been talking about this for a couple weeks now. Uh, I talked about it the first week. We talked about him flipping over tables at the temple. And then last week, Pastor Joe talked about how he broke the Sabbath. Great conversations, mine and Pastor Joe's. Mine's probably better, to be honest with you, but I encourage you to, to, uh, to listen to both of those podcasts online and the website. But really, really good stuff. Uh, this weekend, I want to take us to... Um, a place in Jesus's journey that might be familiar and that it, it, it'd be familiar if you grew up in church. So if you didn't grow up in church, this is probably new stuff and you're gonna love this story. Um, if you grew up in church, it may be something that you've heard a few times, uh, but there's a lot, a lot here. And I wanna take you to uh, uh, the place where Jesus interacts with a lady at a well. We often call it the woman at the well. And the woman at the well is in John chapter four. So if you got a Bible, grab it, open it up. John chapter four is where we're gonna hang out. And this is all on the app. Uh, so you can look it up there if you want to. Uh, but the woman at the well, the, the, the stuff that plays out there with the woman at the well, there is so much there. I was telling the, the, uh, our team as we were getting ready for this weekend, I, I said, we probably should just do a series called At the Well. Like there, there are so many things to learn there and so many things that Jesus is doing there. It's pretty amazing. So I want you to kind of know up front, I'm gonna narrow this a lot this weekend because I, I wanna look specifically at these, this sacrilege part, the, the, the times when he pushes uh, into these dif- different religious systems and then, and then uh, how that shows up there. So let's, let me read it with you and then we'll dig into it a little bit, okay? So John chapter four, uh, Jesus is out and about with his disciples. He's teaching, healing, kind of doing Jesus stuff. And uh, he, he's on his way to a certain town and he decided to go through a place called Samaria. And it was kind of on the way to where he was going. So verse six, uh, there in Samaria was Jacob's well. And Jesus was tired from the long walk and weary. So he sat down beside the well at noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because the disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift of God, the gift that God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, we don't have a bucket and a rope, she said. And this was very deep. Where would you get this living water? Verse 13, Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water from this well will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. 
please, sir, she said, give me this water, then I'll, I'll never thirst again. I won't have to come here and get water out of this well. And then like Jesus like abruptly changes the subject, verse 16, go and get your husband. He said, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. She said, you're right, you don't have a husband, uh, for you've had five, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly have spoken the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet, so tell me, why is it that the Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship, while we Samaritans claim it's on that mountain over there where our ancestors worshiped? Jesus replied, believe me, dear lady, the time is coming when it will, ready? It will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on the mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship while we Jews know all about him for salvation comes from the Jews. But the time is coming and indeed is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The lady said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just as the disciples came back, they were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what does he want with her or why are they talking, right? So this, this scenario plays out. Jesus is talking to this lady at the well, and there's a ton there. There's, there's his revelation that he's the Messiah. There's salvation, this living water, this, you know, the uh, water quenching the thirst of your soul. And he uses that metaphor there. And then he gets into this whole conversation about like worship. And she's like, we worship on the mountain. You guys say you have to worship in Jerusalem. And this whole conversation plays out, right? So I wanna, I wanna look at this a little bit and see if we can, make sense of it, and in particular, this, this idea of worshiping in spirit and in truth and why that's a big deal to us. Okay, so the path we're gonna kind of take here uh, this weekend, I'm gonna tell you the story of the woman at the well, kind of like her, her backstory. I'm gonna tell you the story of the religious people blocking her view of God. So like their story, those Jews, is the way that she kept kind of referring to it. And then we're gonna look at Jesus' story because he's in play here. And then where we're gonna land is we're gonna find ourselves surprised or shocked by Jesus. It's probably gonna surprise you or shock you what, what Jesus is doing and, and why he's doing it, okay? So let's start with her story. So what's the deal with the lady at the well? There's two things you need to know about the lady at the well for all this to make sense, all right? And, and, uh, and, and as you get your head around these two things, it'll start to help you get your head around like what, what Jesus is up to here, right? So the first thing you need to know about the lady at the well is that she's a Samaritan. She's a Samaritan. So that's a deal, right? So what's a Samaritan? So a Samaritan is a person who is half Jewish and half Gentile, right? So a Gentile in the Bible is just somebody who's not a Jew, right? So half Jewish, half Gentile. So somewhere way back in the day and in, in her ancestry, uh, there were people of pure Jewish blood, culture, and religion, and they would have sinned against uh, Jewish law by marrying or at least having kids with non-Jewish people, okay? So they, they intermarried, 
the Jewish people would have found that very, very offensive and would have labeled it even sinful. So they would look at the children of these of this union and they would despise those kids, reject those kids, and, and be hateful toward those kids. It's how we would think of bigotry or racism, right? And so they would have looked at them and said, You're, there's something wrong with you. We reject you. We don't want you. You have defamed the truth. You have perverted the, the, the culture. You've polluted us, and we hate you. So Jews hated Samaritans, okay? Now, if one group hates another group, what's the other group do? Hate you back, right? So the Samaritans hate the Jews. Now, what's unique about them and why this is a deal is because they come from a common religion. So the Jews would have taught about a promised Messiah called the Christ. When the Jews rejected these these kids that were half and half, and they became the Samaritans. The Samaritans were like, we reject you, so we're gonna go start our own religion. We're gonna find our own truth. And when they went and found their own truth, they brought elements of that truth into their truth. So this lady, even though she's rejected by the Jews, she still knows about the coming Messiah called the Christ. Because when the Samaritans went, the Jews went to Jerusalem, the Samaritans went up on their mountain, but they brought that same like pieces and parts of that faith in there, created their own truth, but that was woven into it, right? So even though the Jews know about the Messiah and the Samaritans also know about the Messiah, and this lady was Samaritan and that's where she was. And she was shocked that Jesus was interacting with her because she's like, you're a Jew, and you're talking to me, and you know that I'm a Samaritan, right? And you guys hate us, and we hate you, right? And that was, that's a big part of her identity and who she was. So you need to know that about her. The other thing that you need to know about her is that she was a lady with lots of struggles, lots of struggles. And Jesus, he's not being mean when he's like, you, you're divorced five times, now you're living with a guy. He's not being mean. He's just like getting to the point. He's like, you're, she, was, she was kind of being snarky with him. And he's like, can we just like cut to the chase? Uh, go get your husband. She's like, I don't have one. He's like, I know that. You've had five. So you're five times divorced and now you're living with a person that's not your husband. And in that culture, what that basically meant was that she was a prostitute, right? So to be five times divorced, something horrific is happening in those relationships and she's the common, fa- common denominator. And now she's living with a guy. And so she would feel that this lady is hurt, abused, abandoned, used, soul weary, bitter, angry, snarky. She's been rejected by the Jews because she's a Samaritan She's been rejected by the Samaritan because she's been divorced five times and now she's living with a guy. All the women are like, you're the woman that we don't want around our husbands. And we know that she's rejected by the Samaritans because she went to the well at noon. So in that culture, you, did, you went to the well at daybreak because I don't know if you've ever been in the Middle East, but it's hot. 
right? So you didn't do physical labor in the heat of the day. You did it in the cool of the day, right? So it would have been practice for the women. It was different world. It was like their job. The women would go and get the water first thing in the morning, cook, clean. She wasn't welcome in that. So for her to be there by herself in the heat of the day tells you that the Samaritan women particularly rejected her. And when Jesus surfaces her story, you're like, right, of course. So this lady, she is rejected for her culture and she is rejected for her personage, right? And she is a, she is a hurting, broken, the Bible says sinful lady. That's who she is, right? And that's who Jesus is talking to at the well. So that's her story, right? So she's, she's a figure in this story. The other figure in this story, we'll just call it their story. And it's, it's the Jewish side of the coin, right? So this Samaritan Jew thing, it's like a, it's like a deal and this whole thing. And when, when you look at the Jews and what their deal was and what Jesus's frustration with them would have been is this. They were people who were entrusted with the truth of salvation. So when she says, um, I know that there's, the, there's a Messiah called the Christ. He's gonna come make sense to us. Jesus is like, right, you guys know a little bit about the Messiah because you just kind of took him with you back whenever you started your religion. So you know a little bit about the Messiah. The Jews know a lot about the Messiah because salvation comes from the Jews. So Jesus was Jewish and the original disciples were all Jewish. And so salvation comes from the Jews. We would even know that as Christians, we would look at the Old Testament, which is Jewish, and see that show up in the New Testament, right? So Jesus would look at them and be like, yeah, you guys know, like, we'd say the Old Testament, the Bible, inside and out. You know all about the Messiah. You know all about the prophecies. You know all about like what God was doing in the Old Testament, why it worked that way, the temple, the sacrifices, like all these, all these things that are kind of strange, but you guys would understand all that. You were the keeper of the knowledge of salvation. And instead of sharing that or inviting that, what I'm frustrated with you is you took that and you created a religious system out of it. So even the temple, if you go back and listen to the conversation a couple weeks ago, the temple was meant to declare God's goodness, faithfulness, and love. It wasn't meant to be a barrier. Last week's conversation, the Sabbath was something given to us by God. It wasn't meant to be a barrier to God. So Jesus is like, you guys took the truth that I entrusted you with and you turned it into barriers and systems so that you have to, learn to be Jewish before you can learn about the salvation of, of God, right? So her story is Samaritan, all that's preloaded there, and then her brokenness. And their story is Jewish and all that's preloaded there and, and their barriers that they set up. And in the middle of all of that, Jesus shows up. And by the way, when you look at the geography of where he was going, what he was doing, he walked about 30, 35 miles out of his way to be at that well. 
So he, he's there on purpose. He wasn't like, you know, I just happened to be at a well one day and I met this. That's not what happened. He, he like went there to meet that lady to have these conversations about worship, about her soul. We'll see it here in a minute, but about worship and who God is and what God wants. So Jesus shows up and, and his story is woven into her story and their story. And he's there very, very much on purpose, right? So he shows up, can I get a drink? Uh, why, why would you ask me a Jewish guy? I'm gonna give you living water. She's confused. She's like, I don't even know what that means. Like, just do it then so I don't have to lug this water out as well. And he's like, get your husband. So she's like, how did we get into the family conversation, right? And then it turns to worship of all things, right? So what is he doing and why? Now, this is important. When Jesus shows up, he takes the conversation here. She says, I know that there's a Messiah coming. His name, he's the Christ. And he's gonna explain everything. And Jesus looks at her and basically says, hello, <laughs> I have come, <laughs> right? So he says, I'm here. But he says something about him being there and what it means. This is what he says. He says, but a time is coming and indeed it's down here, it's me. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, the Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This is funny, because he's not, he's, not like, he's not like, you know what, let's, let's talk more about your family situation. He, he, he goes to her heart, and then he goes to what she's looking for. So she's broken, hurting, worn out, tired, abused, sinful, rebellious. And she's hoping for hope. I, I'm by myself at this well, but I remember there's a Messiah, the Christ, and he's supposed to make my life make sense. I have that in me, and I hope that will happen. But the Jews won't let me in the temple. And the Samaritans won't let me into their false religion. But I still hope for God. So Jesus basically comes and he says, you know what, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. This Messiah that you're looking for, he, he's going he's gonna to point people to his father. And let, I... I happen to know the Messiah. And so I can tell you what his father's thinking. This is what his father's looking for. He's looking for true worshipers, right? So what's that mean to her? True worshipers. Oh, you mean Jewish people. So you go to the temple and you offer your sacrifice and here's my goat and here's my dove and here's my temple tax and I get my sins forgiven. True, that. Nope, that's not what he's looking for. He's looking for true worshipers. Oh, you mean Samaritans. We go to the mountain, we don't offer a dove, we offer like a cat, which is a good sacrifice. And we do this, and we do that, and we do other things, and then we're in on that. Nope, true worshipers. I don't know what you mean. True worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And a true worshiper, look at this, must worship that way. There's two times in the book of John that Jesus uses that word must. 
The first time he's talking to a, a Jewish Pharisee and he says, you must be born again to go to heaven. You must, it's the only way to go to heaven. The second time he uses that word is right here. You must worship the father in spirit and in truth. So what's he saying? He says, the father wants people who worship in spirit and truth. The term spirit here means affection and it's affection of our heart, right? It's another place in the Bible. Guy comes up to Jesus. He's like, Jesus, what's the number one rule? I'm a Jewish guy. I worship at the temple, the dove, the sacrifice, blah, blah, blah. What's the number one rule? Tell me the number one commandment. Jesus is like, okay, here it is. Ready? All right, what do you want me to do? Here's the number one rule. Love me with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second rule is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And the number one rule to know God had nothing to do with practice. It had everything to do with affection. Love me. You mean offer more sacrifices? No, love me. You mean, you mean go to the temple? No, love me. Have an affection for me. I want you to know my heart and know my mind. I want you to understand the depth of my love and compassion and forgiveness for you. I want you to understand that what that's gonna feel like to your soul is a eternal spring that bubbles up in life. It's going to refresh your soul. And the more that you understand my love and the more that you understand my forgiveness and the more that you understand my grace and my mercy, the more you know about me, I want that to generate love or affection for me. The father is looking for people who worship him from a place of affection, who love the Lord, have affection for the Lord, not who do this, do this, do this, do this, it's Tuesday, it's Wednesday, here's the calendar, here's the ritual, this is what we do every week. But out of affection, okay? So Jesus says, if I was looking for people who will worship me in spirit, from the soul, from the heart, have affection for me. But he doesn't mean this just emotionally. He balances this, so to say, or completes it, and he says, if I was looking for people who worship in spirit and in truth, and he's talking about knowing the heart and the mind of Jesus. And we would know that mostly through the word of God or through the Bible, through the scriptures, right? So I don't want you just to feel a certain way about me. I don't want you to create your own truth and feel good about that. And I just decided that some, something was my higher power. And I'm going to call that my worship of God. Say, like, no, no, no. This affection is directed and exercised through truth, Right? The truth of who the one you feel affectionate about is rooted in, right? So this last week was Valentine's Day. If, you, if that shocks you, you are so dead. Like, I can't even imagine what your life was like this week. But like, it was Valentine's Day, right? So Heidi's my Valentine's for 30, 30 years running. Same Valentine's, right? So she's my Valentine. I have affection for her. But that affection is grounded in my knowledge of her. So what I do for Heidi doesn't come from my emotion. It's my emotion acting on the truth of who she is. 
So for Valentine's Day, if I had gone home and I looked at Heidi, I said, Heidi, I wiped out the savings accounts, the retirement, the, the kids' college fund, which we're doing anyways because we're not giving our kids anything. But like, if, I, if, we did, if we did all that and I bought you this 50-carat diamond ring, right? And I gave her this massive ring and I'd be like, I love you so much. Here is this diamond ring. If I gave that to her, she would look at me and say, you are an idiot on so many levels. Like, I don't want this. You must not know me if you thought I would like it. It's value to me is that I would cash it out and do what I wanted to do with it, right? My knowledge of her steers my affection and how that plays out for her. It's based in the truth of who she is. I would never buy that for Heidi. What I would do is I would go home for Valentine's Day and I'd say, baby, I got you something. You, I'm, I'm, you can go skydiving. They jump out of an airplane, your parachute goes, once it lets loose, it turns directly into a bungee cord and you bungee cord and then you can like swim with sharks. And she'd be like, I love you, right? Because she'd be like, I want, I want an adventure. I want to go do something new. That's the way she, she doesn't want jewelry. She wants an experience. How do I know that? Because I know her. And who she is defines my affections, right? The father is looking for people who know him and are learning more and more about him. And they express affection from this truth about who he is. And worshipers must worship God that way. It's got nothing to do with what I think about God. It's got to do about what God says about himself, right? So Jesus looks at this lady and he's like, that's the way this works. I'm, I'm the Messiah. I, I don't, I'm not asking you to go to Jerusalem and work at the temple and that's what they're saying. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm not asking you to go to the mountain and like do whatever you do on the mountain. I'm looking for people who worship me, who love me and do that in truth. And when I interacted with you, knowing your sin, five husbands and you're living with a guy, I still offered you living water. I didn't ask you to go to Jerusalem I didn't ask you to get to the mountain. I came to you at the well. So Jesus pushes against the Jewish system. That's not not what that was even given to them for. In fact, I'm kind of honked off that they've perverted it and twisted it so much. Ready? But he also pushed against the Samaritan system. Like your, your truth is not truth. So I, is you rejecting that and going making up something equally as false, that also has nothing to do with me. Right? I'm the third way and Jesus, his words, he says, I'm the only way, I'm the only truth. And Jesus just looked at her and said, I'm the, I'm the Messiah. 
And I did come and I'm here to make all that make sense for you, right? Now, when that played out, it's fascinating. When that played out at the well, her reaction and their reaction is fascinating and it's telling and it's kind of would be our reaction. Because here's the deal, guys. We, we all wind up at the well. You, you all, we all wind up at the well. You wind up there as a sinful person or you, you wind up there as a self-righteous person. But you all wind up in the well. And the good news is, is that Jesus is there to meet both so that he can make himself make sense, right? So this is what happens. Some people who wind up at the well and they find out who the Messiah actually is, they're surprised by it. They're surprised by it. And that's what happened to the lady. The Bible says this, verse nine, the woman was surprised for Jews refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking for a drink? She was surprised. She's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're a Jew. And, and my whole life I was taught and all of my experiences are that the Jews who know a lot about the Messiah and are the keepers of the truth of salvation hate me. I just assumed, because the Messiah is from the Jews, I just assumed the Messiah would hate me. I mean, you, got, you guys are, my whole life have looked at me and said, you know what you need. You need the Messiah. And you know who knows him. We do. And you know where you're not welcome? Wherever we are. And we know the way. And you need the way. But we're not showing you the way. In fact, we're going to complicate it with such consistency that the people who hope for hope think that the people who hold hope hate them. And the last place that they would ever show up is the temple. So she was shocked, surprised. I'm I'm so surprised that you're talking to me. I thought you guys all hated me. I'm so surprised that the Messiah who knows my sin, call your husband. Oh, yeah, uh, you've had five and you're living with a guy. The Messiah who knows my sin didn't care about how my sin was expressed as much as he cared about the pain that it brought into my soul. And he didn't minimize my sin. He called me a sinner. And he didn't condone my sin. He wasn't like, you know what, you have so much pain. I... But he understood that I didn't just arrive in the place that I am in life, like spontaneously. Maybe the reason why I've been divorced five times and the common denominator is me has less to do with me being a jerk or me being promiscuous 
it has way more to do with what happened to me as a little girl. Maybe my life played out and I turned to sin and I turned to rebellion, not just because I'm wicked and sinful like every human being, but maybe it had a lot to do with my pain and my rejection and my exhaustion. And I'm a woman in the ancient world and literally the only way to keep a roof over my head is to go to bed with some guy. And I don't know what else to do. And I'm shocked because you guys always rejected me and hated me. And I'm shocked that the Messiah would come to the well. I'm I'm just surprised that that's who the Messiah actually is. In my shame and in my guilt and in my rebellion, it never even dawned on me that God would meet me here. She was surprised by it. We all go to the well. Some of us are surprised by the Messiah that we find there. Some of us are shocked by what the Messiah is doing there. The disciples, you know, they're off looking for lunch this whole time. They come back, verse 27, The disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? So they come back and they're shocked because these guys are raised Jewish. And and they're not necessarily like racist or bigots. They've just been raised by them. And so that way of thinking is in their brain. They would have thought of Samaritans as a category of people that were broken and dirty and polluted. And you want to be careful not to get around them or they'll break you and pollute you. So they had like these woven in biases and prejudices and they're looking at this lady and they walk up and the guy that they believe is God and that they believe is the Messiah and that they believe is sinless and they believe is holy is talking to a Samaritan prostitute. And everything that they were ever taught religiously like just blew up in their face. And they were shocked to find him talking, but they didn't have the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? It's just fascinating. They, they, like everything, all of our preconceived ideas just blew up in her face and they blew up in her face by a Jesus that we believe is God and is sinless. So, um, and, and when you look at the passage there, they, they didn't ask why, they didn't ask what, they asked him, what do you want for lunch? And, and, and they're like, they're like it so blew their mind that they were like, um, uh, change the subject. They didn't ask, why are you talking to a Samaritan woman? And why would you want us to? Because we were told whatever you do, don't do that. And they didn't ask, what are you talking to her about? Because we were told, like, if, you, if they get too close to you, you might, like, start acting like a Samaritan. They didn't want to know. They, they, were, they were so ingrained in what they had been taught and what they were used to and what they assumed the Messiah was like. 
that they, they, they didn't want to know what Jesus was unplugging or why he was unplugging it. They're just like, you want lunch? <laughs> and they were just blown away by it. And it's fascinating. Jesus, Jesus looks at them and he's like, what? You want lunch? And he looks at them and he says, you know what my nourishment is? My nourishment is doing the will of my father. You want mayonnaise on the will of your father? Like they had no idea what to do. And he finally, he kind of gets righteously frustrated with them. And he, and he says this to them. He goes, fellas, listen. He said, you know, you know the saying that four months between, there's four months between the planting and harvest? But I say to you right now, wake up and look around. The harvest fields are already ripe. He, he's like, what? Why are you asking me about lunch? Why aren't you asking me why I was talking to a woman that you consider impure and what I was talking to her about? Wake up and look around. Fellas, listen, you've been raised your whole life to believe that those people, those people are bad. Those people are wicked. Those people will pollute you. Those people look at you. You've been taught your whole life, they're hard-hearted. They don't care. They made up their own religion. They twisted the faith. You've been taught your whole life, they're doing all that on permission. absolutely, what a sicko bunch of Christians. Your whole life, you've looked at them that way. And you looked at them as the enemy or the danger or the ones assaulting because you only see what's happening on the outside, which is mostly a reaction to the way you've been and treating them and I'm saying to you they're not your enemy they're not your pollution they're your mission wake up what are you doing well she's had five husbands which means she's had a lot of pain which means she's really hoping for hope the hope that you keep she's not somebody to be afraid of she, she's a harvest is right she's she just needs to know the Messiah and nobody will tell her about him. So I did it myself. And they were shocked that their sinless, righteous, holy God would interact with that lady at that well. And she was surprised that a sinless, righteous, holy God would interact with a bitter, broken, weary sinner at that well. And it blew up the disciples' world, religiously, and it blew hers up. And Jesus is like, I'm not looking for that because you just made that up. I'm not looking for that because you made up all the stuff around it. I am the Messiah. The band's gonna come out and settle in. They have to rearrange the stage here a little bit, so. Can you bow your heads and close your eyes and just think with me here for a minute why they do that? Guys, some of you 
are like the lady. And your sin, whatever, it doesn't matter what it is, but you think it does. And you think it does because people have told you that. That, your sin is the taboo one. God can't love the morally impure, the person struggling with their sexual identity, the person who's greedy, the person who's addicted. And I'm sorry that the keepers of the truth taught you that. But I want you to see the Messiah. He never said that, never once. He would say that your sin is sin and it separates you from God. But he would never say that your sin is the taboo one, the gross one, the unacceptable one. He would look at you and say you're broken and you're tired and you're worn out and you made up your own truth and it's not real at all. And he just showed up at your well and he's offering you the same salvation that he offers everybody. This story has a great ending. The lady accepted the offer and she brought the whole village. (laughs) A bunch of them did. So you might be surprised by that. But to feel the depth of God's love and to respond to him and his truth is exactly what he's looking for. He doesn't really care how messed up your life has been. And some of us, we're just shocked that Jesus would love sinners. Because somehow we forgot that we are one, and so we should be afraid of some, especially if they're, you know, have those sins. And we know what Jesus did at the well, we just don't know why he did it or what he was doing. We never paid attention. And so we don't see that he met us at our well. We're, we're just the lady on the other side of the interaction. And out of affection for the truth of what God has done, his forgiveness of us, him not making our, tab, our sin the taboo sin, his love of us, the affection that comes from the truth. We worship. And we worship mostly by loving the way that we've been loved, forgiving as we've been forgiven. And loving even people that we've been taught to hate, our enemies. Jesus, thank you for meeting us in this place. For those surprised, would you in this moment, through your spirit, empowering your word, draw them to yourself with the surprise of your kindness. 
And for those of us who are shocked through your spirit empowering your word, would you help us to wake up and look around and see people the way that you see people and even see ourselves the way that you see us? Would you press these things into our hearts?